Hey everyone, Mundo here. If you would like to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash crimeandcourtusa. What's up, everyone, and welcome to episode 38 of Crime and Court USA. It's a weekly show where I cover all the big, well, not all the big, but a lot of big crime and legal news going on in the good old U.S. of A. I'm your host, Nuno Carrillo, recording this on February 16th, 2022. I hope you guys are doing well. Uh, so sorry for missing last week again, but, um, you know, back was still kind of bothering me, and... Then I got my booster shot, which really jacked me up for a few days. So, so I was like, you know what, screw it. Just going to take another week off, just try to recover and all that. And um, yeah, the back's feeling okay today. Actually, I'm going to start physical therapy very soon. So excited about that. Hopefully just get that whole thing taken care of because honestly, my back has been bugging me for about 10 years now plus. So I mean, I'm a young fella, can't be dealing with this stuff anymore. You know what I mean? Actually, I read that like 90% of the population deals with back problems. That's freaking insane, man. Scientists, get on it. Fix our backs, please. What are you guys even doing? You know, finding a cure for COVID? Come on. (laughs) All right, that's enough. That's enough goofing around, guys. We We have a lot to talk about this week, so why don't we just get into it? So there have been a couple of lawsuits that have been filed against producers of the Netflix film Rust, in the aftermath of the shooting death of cinematographer Helena Hutchins on the set back in October. So this week, Hutchins's family filed a wrongful death lawsuit against actor Alec Baldwin, who was also a producer on the film, and uh, other producers of the movie, which was being filmed near Santa Fe, New Mexico. Hutchins was killed after Baldwin pulled a gun from his holster while they were practicing a scene, and the gun went off, uh, the bullet struck Hutchins in the chest, and then hit director Joel Souza in the shoulder. Hutchins was airlifted to a hospital in Albuquerque and died of her injuries, and Souza was treated at a hospital in Santa Fe and was released that same day, I believe. Now, the lawsuit says the defendants sacrificed crew member safety by hiring inexperienced crew members and disregarding safety concerns from the camera crew. That's according to the Los Angeles Times. In general, a lot of blame has been placed on the 24-year-old armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, who was in charge of the guns on the set. She and assistant director Dave Halls are also listed as defendants in this lawsuit, as are the prop master and the owner of the company that provided the weapons to the production. Now, the story goes that Gutierrez-Reed put a gun on a cart, which Halls then grabbed and headed to Baldwin, while indicating that the gun had no live rounds in it. And there was already a lot of concern about gun safety on the set even before the shooting. There were reports of crew members using live rounds for target practice and that the guns were being unattended. Now, this this whole live round for target practice thing, when this whole thing broke out, so many people were shocked that there was even a live round on set. And obviously it makes sense that why is there a live bullet here? But I mean, I don't know. It just seems like maybe that's not so true, Hollywood. Maybe there are a lot of live rounds on set all the time. Anyhow, on the day of the shooting, several crew members actually walked off the set, 
this was the morning of the shooting before it happened. They walked off to protest safety conditions and uh, working conditions. They were also not happy about having to commute from Albuquerque every single day. That's about an hour from Santa Fe, so back and forth every single day. And when those people walked off, non-union members were actually called in very quickly to fill their spots. The Santa Fe County Sheriff's Office is investigating how live ammo got on the set, and so far neither the Sheriff's Office or the District Attorney's Office have ruled out any criminal charges. Now, Hudgens was apparently on the rise in the film industry, and she was even named one of the American Cinematographer's Rising Stars of 2019. That's again, according to the LA Times. So very tragic. Seems like this uh, woman was uh, just on her way to the top, man. Very, very sad. Now, a week before that, a medic on the set filed a lawsuit alleging that she was uh, traumatized by the incident and that she could no longer do her job. This is one I was going to talk about last week, but obviously I'm a little late. So um, the reporting from this one comes from my old colleague, Phaedra Haywood from the Santa Fe New Mexican. Uh, she reports that Sherlyn Schaefer, Sherlyn, not sure how I say that, it's C-H-E-R-L-Y-N, Schaefer sued pretty much all the same people that Hutchinson's family sued except for Baldwin. He's not named as a defendant in this lawsuit. And she said that she tried desperately to save Hutchinson's life, but uh, did not uh, succeed in doing that. The New Mexican reports that Schaefer was there to administer first aid, but was supposed to call first responders in the event of a serious injury. Now, of course, this lawsuit is getting some pushback, with most people saying that medics are supposed to deal with trauma and stress. But after that, reading that quick statement in the New Mexican, it doesn't seem like serious injuries, trauma, were actually part of her job. So I'm not sure if it's entirely true or, or fair to say that her job is to deal with like gunshot wounds. So because that was like my first thought, right? Like really you're suing for this? I thought that medics were supposed to deal with, you know, gunshots, stab wounds, all the all the horrible stuff. So like, what do you mean? Like it's tra- you can't do your job now. I thought that was your job. But I know there's a difference between like people in the medical field. Like I know a medic's different than a paramedic. And I don't know. I know, I know, I know there's a difference in, in, in these different uh, jobs, but um, I'm not sure what they are. And with that said, I don't really know if this lawsuit holds any water. I know the, to the average person, it might seem like it doesn't, but I'm not so sure. We'll see how, how these uh, both go. And I just knew that these lawsuits were going to fly <laughs> after this happened, right? Clearly a lot of negligence happened in this case that led to someone's death. So the wrongful death thing, the wrongful death suit, that will, that certainly has more weight to it. <laughs> you know, I think that'll either, I mean, I, I think the, the family will, will get something from that, whether it's awarded by a jury or whether something gets settled. Because again, I think the case is very strong for negligence leading to a wrongful death. This other one about the rust, uh, the medic um, suffering trauma, I'm not so sure. But we'll see how they both break out. All right, next, we have a case out of Florida that reminds me a lot of a case that I covered in New Mexico. So a couple in Jupiter, Florida, has been arrested for allegedly locking their 14-year-old adopted son in a small structure in their garage for hours on end. Tracy and Timothy Ferreter, both 46, are charged with aggravated child abuse and false imprisonment, according to WPTV out of West Palm Beach, Florida. Police say they forced their son to live in an 8-foot by 8-foot structure, which had a mattress, a camera, and a bucket inside, as well as a desk and some uh, children's books. And the teen was forced to stay in this structure since about 2017. 
He was allowed to, to attend school, but was kept in the structure when he was home and not at school. When he was at home, he was kept in this room, it seems like, which had a handle on the outside, but not on the inside. So basically, he just couldn't leave. In late January, Tracy Ferreter reported that the boy was missing. She said her son had several behavioral disorders and had gotten in trouble at school the day before. Officers went back to the house two days later to follow up on that, and that's when they went to the house. The, the Ferreters allowed them in. And that's when they found the structure in the garage. And the following day, they actually they found the boy at, a, at the middle school he attended, I believe. And he told the police that they kept him in the room for up to 18 hours a day. And that he even pleaded with him, with the officers, to arrest him because he would rather be in prison than be back at home. And, uh, well, it seems like your home was a prison, little buddy, unfortunately. Allegedly, I gotta say. Three other children living in the home, the youngest of which was two, is two years old, were removed and placed in the custody of the state. And the Washington Post actually has a great story about the handyman who was asked to build the structure and had he just had a really bad feeling about it. You know how their specifications, how it had to be like super small, had to have air conditioning, uh, an air conditioning unit in it. And um, yeah, he, I guess he just had a bad feeling. And he told the cops, this was about a month before the cops first investigated the missing child report. So I think in late December. And um, no, so he, t- he told the cops, I guess nothing happened until a month later. I mean, I'm not sure what the cops could do about that. I don't think it's a crime to build a structure in your garage. It certainly is to keep a child in there for hours on end. But um, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure what they could have done at that point either way, other than to just keep an eye on it. Yeah, this case sounds a lot like the Jeremiah Valencia case that I talked about in episode 24. If you guys want to go back and listen to it, Jeremiah was a 13-year-old boy from New Mexico who was forced to live in a dog kennel and was tortured with implements such as a homemade spear, a hammer, an electric dog collar, and just so many other forms of torture, basically. He wasn't in school at the time of his death. He was pulled from school and never put in another one. His parents actually moved, and he was never put in a new school after the move. So he was just completely disappeared off the map, and he actually died in November 2017, around Thanksgiving time when the adult son of his mom's boyfriend flipped the dog kennel and caused him to break his neck. All right, let's move on to the next story. A judge has ruled that the Air Force was partially responsible for a Texas church shooting that killed 26 people back in 2017. U.S. District Court Judge Xavier Rodriguez, or Javier Rodriguez, depending on how you say it, ordered the Air Force to pay $230 million dollars to survivors and families of the victims of the shooting at the First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, Texas. There were children among the dead, and one family had three generations of people killed in it. The, the grandparents were killed, an adult son was killed, and I believe a two-year-old child, maybe even younger, was killed as well. So three generations taken out in that single incident. Devin Patrick Kelly, a former U.S. Airman, fired 450 rounds from an AR-556 in a span of 7 minutes and 24 seconds. He later died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Now, last year, the court actually found that the Air Force didn't flag a conviction that would have prevented Kelly from buying a gun legally. The court found that the Air Force was 60% responsible, so mostly responsible, for the deaths and the injuries that were caused that day. Now, that's usually how it goes in civil court with, like, the percentages and stuff. (laughs) You know, a judge or jury, depending on who is deciding the outcome, 
kind of like ways who was responsible for what. So in this case, for example, the uh, judge found that that the Air Force was 60% responsible and that Kelly, I suppose, was the remaining 40%, right? Interesting how they found that uh, Kelly was not mostly responsible, that the Air Force was. But uh, if we can go into some background on that, Kelly uh, enlisted in the Air Force in 2010 and served at Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico, according to the Washington Post. And in 2012, he was court-martialed, so basically just charged with a crime, and sentenced to a year in military prison for assaulting his wife and child. He was released from the Air Force in 2014 on a bad conduct discharge. So yeah, usually if you're convicted of a felony, while you're in the service, you serve that time, whatever you get sentenced to, and you get the boot. According to a Washington Post story from November 2017, the Air Force said Kelly's conviction was never entered into a national database, which meant that he was able to pass background checks. And remember, if you are a convicted felon, you legally cannot purchase a gun. And this kind of seems like it was almost like a clerical error, like someone didn't put his name to the national database. And um, that happens a lot <laughs> in my experience covering the criminal justice system, where someone will literally just forget to put someone's name in a, in a database or in a computer or something. And, you know, that person goes on to commit a horrible crime. In fact, actually, uh, the Jeremiah Valencia case that I was telling you about, the sort of mastermind behind all that torture and abuse was the mom's boyfriend. And he was able to, uh, you know, evade police at least one time because someone didn't put his, uh, the fact they had a warrant in, in, in the database. So it happens a lot, you guys. It happens a lot. And, you know, it sucks when you read about it and when you hear about it because you just know that something could have been prevented. And to think that 26 people's lives could have been saved and that 22 uh, people, other people didn't have to be injured. I mean, it makes, it makes you think like all that maybe, and obviously this guy was nuts and committed a horrible atrocity, but maybe it could have been prevented if somebody just didn't fuck it up. Sorry. I mean, what else can you call it, guys? It's, it's a fuck up. That's what it is. When you just forget to do something like that and something like this, you know, the butterfly affecting where something like this happens later on, you fucked up. Sorry. What do you want me to tell you? Okay, that, that is that. Let's move on to a more lighthearted story, or, well, as lighthearted as this show's going to get. Anyways, an 80-year-old nun was sentenced to a year in prison for stealing $835,000 from a California elementary school. Sister Mary Margaret Kruiper was the former principal of St. James Catholic School in Torrance, California. That's in the Los Angeles area. She admitted to stealing tuition money to go on lavish trips to Las Vegas and to Lake Tahoe. Whoops, dropped my pen on the desk there. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah, so she went on these lavish trips, and apparently she was addicted to gambling. And um, yeah, so she, she went on these trips, and she gambled the money to make the money go away, it looks like. And um, this went on for about a decade, according to the Los Angeles Times. So, yeah, and it looks like the judge... It's pretty light on her because she was a nun. I guess nuns. This guy had a soft spot for nuns. He was inspired by a nun as as a young fella. So um, yeah, he totally like took it took it easy on her and eight, stole eight hundred and thirty five thousand dollars from children, basically. And she only gets a year in prison. That's it's a little light. It's a little light if you ask me. But what are you gonna do, Sister Mary Margaret? How could you? That's such a <laughs> that's, that's such a nun name, isn't it, Sister Mary Margaret? She sounds like one of the nuns from Sister Act or something. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, and uh, lastly, guys, I just want to give you a heads up. 
that the three men who were convicted of murdering Ahmad Arbery in Georgia, that would be uh, Travis McMichael, Greg McMichael, and William Bryan, they're all in the middle of their federal hate crime trial right now. I'm not really following that too closely. I think I'll give you guys the verdict when that comes out. But, I mean, the two McMichaels, their father and son, they got life sentences without parole. William Bryan got a life sentences with the possibility of parole. I mean, they're going away for life. So, I don't know. I mean, this this almost seems like, uh, I don't want to say pointless because it, it certainly, I think it was a hate crime and they should be charged accordingly, but it's not going to add any kind of prison time uh, for that because they're already serving their lives in prison. But again, I'll, I think I'll update you guys when we get a verdict. And that should be all for this week. You guys, remember to share the podcast with your friends, share it with your enemies, help me continue to spread the word of Crime and Court USA. The show does continue to grow, so... For that, I thank you guys. Thank you for coming back week after week. Yeah, and I feel so bad. I can imagine you guys when when I don't have an episode out, you know, looking at your little, you know, whatever podcast app you use and seeing that Crime and Court USA is not updated. It must break your little hearts. And it breaks mine too. I hate missing a week. But you know what? Sometimes you just got to take care of yourself, man. You got to take care of yourself. Uh, visit the Patreon page, patreon.com slash USA. You do have access to exclusive perks there, like getting exclusive episodes and having the ability to write in, stuff like that. So uh, please uh, go there, help support me, help me keep the dream alive. All right, guys, until next time, my name is Mundo, and I'm out. Peace.